with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast. If you're a regular listener, you know that we nerd out on the replacements all the goddamn time. Recently, we were graced with the presence of Mr. Peter Jesperson to talk about the Reiner Records 40th anniversary reissue of Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash. And today, it's kind of round two because I get to talk to author Bob Mayer, a dude who wrote the definitive story of The Replacements, the fucking phenomenal book, Trouble Boys, which I'm holding in my hand right now. Most importantly, Bob won a goddamn Grammy for his liner notes on Dead Man's Pop, and now he's back with an awesome booklet in the Sorry Moss set, which I have here in my hand as, as well, uh, and I hope... He's nominated for another Liner Notes Grammy. I think he will be. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Mr. Bob Mayer. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, dude, uh, I, I f- kind of feel like you're like an unofficial member of of the band now, in a way. Don't, because... put, don't put that on me. I don't want to accrue a be part. Uh, no, that I would never presume. But um, I've been lucky in that sort of out, as an outgrowth of kind of doing the book. A lot of these other projects have sort of come to pass. And, you know, my whole thing is, even though I wrote the book as a journalist, you know, to, to devote as much time as I devoted to researching and writing the book, uh, you know, you got to be a fan on some level, which I am. And one of the things I was kind of lucky enough to do and have access to in my research for the book was a lot of these unreleased, unheard recordings. And, and so for me, you know, to, to kind of use that as, as material and researching the book and being able to flesh out the story and the kind of bigger picture in terms of what they were doing creatively and just sort of filling in a lot of gaps. It's like, this is amazing stuff. More people should be able to hear this. You know, the fans should be able to hear this. So that was kind of my, you know, my sort of reason for doing all this stuff or kind of getting it going a few years ago as we started it with kind of an unofficial reissue series with uh, Live at Maxwell's uh, 1986. And then since then, obviously, we've done Dead Man's Pop and deluxe versions of Pleased to Meet Me and Now Sorry Ma. Forgot to take out the trash. And so really, it's just like, uh, it's, it's kind of telling the bigger creative story. You know, I told the the, the personal and the narrative and the business story with the book, but you know, there's only so much you can kind of tell on the page. And so to be able to have all these recordings, you know, and there's a, you know, I think much more than people thought or realized in terms of what was in the vaults um, and, and sort of different ways of approaching the catalog. So it's just, I, I'm just thrilled to have any part of kind of getting this stuff out into the world and getting it to the fans. Well, I'm a mega fan. I'm a nerd. I am in my, almost in my mid fifties. Uh, and I was lucky enough to see them around the Please to Meet Me era live. And the replacements hit me like a ton of bricks. I They really were the first band where I sort of felt like, oh, this is me. This These guys are encapsulating everything that I'm about. I, I hate ambition, but I want success. I, I'm haunted by alcoholism, but I celebrate, you know, a fun in life. Um, it is, they just, I just, I wanted to dress like them. I did dress like them. I didn't dress. I've said this on the podcast. I didn't dress like Tommy because it was too hard to find a good pair of creepers in Chicago in the mid eighties. But, um, you know, I dress like Paul. Uh, I dress like Chris, uh, and I dress like Bob. Although I didn't wear, you know, dresses to to school or anything like right. that. But um, they they just really hit me like a ton of bricks. And um, when your book Trouble Boys came out, which I have here in my hand, um, you know, that was like mana from heaven because there's just not enough stuff out there. We were denied the long, long, long career. You know, I, of course, saw them on the, the All Shook Down tour. The last time I saw them was in San Diego, California. You know, I've seen every Paul iteration since then. It, they're just so important and special to me. And you really encapsulated all of the things that I think those of us who love them religiously, uh, you really captured that in the, the story of Trouble Boys. Because uh, this shambolic band from Minneapolis, these sort of working class kids, uh, who all grew up in, you know, kind of troubled backgrounds. Um, you know, they capture the hearts and minds of a lot of people. Uh, so I just want to say thank you for well, the book. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's funny because that's kind of the, the, the best sort of response or kind of reaction I could get to the book. Because, you know, I, I always say, you know, they weren't 
an obscure band. I mean, certainly they weren't like million sellers, but they were written about a lot during their career and talked about, certainly had a kind of uh, mythology, even as the band was going, sort of built up around them. But um, I always felt, you know, as somebody who came to them later, I mean, I saw them in the last couple tours when I was very young in high school, basically. But as someone who came to it and really kind of discovered them and found out more about them almost in their wake, it just struck me there was a kind of hole in the story. You know, it was always about the behavior and the outrageousness and the rebelliousness and the self-sabotage. But as much as they were written about and that part of their kind of history was celebrated, nobody really asked the question of like, why, why were they like this? Why did their, why were they so great? Why, why did they sort of hit a ceiling? Why, you know, what was the power that was inherent in the band and the music? Why did people connect like yourself on such a deep and sort of primal level almost with what they were doing. And so that was, those were really the kind of the questions that I wanted to answer. And like a lot of things, uh, it seemed like maybe that stuff lay in their roots and their personal backgrounds, because to me, it always seemed like even without knowing it, even as I was going there, whatever it was about the replacements that all of us were drawn to, it was kind of an unspoken thing, but you knew there was something there. And then I, what it came to me to be is that there wasn't a whole lot of separation between, um, who they were and what they were, you know, as a band. Uh, I think with some some acts, some bands, they, that's what they are. They're acts, you know. The band is is different, and maybe there's bits and pieces of their personal life. But for me, like with the replacements, I don't think there was. I think they were incapable of sort of separating themselves in that way. And I think so. What you're getting is almost on an unspoken, sort of just intuitive level as a fan. You're getting like this is real, you know. There's something about this. The 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 pain is real. The chaos is real. The the celebration is real. All of that is there. And again, they didn't. They weren't ones really to articulate it. Although Paul did to a certain extent in the songs. I mean, something like "Here Comes a Regular" or "Within Your Reach" or whatever. You know, on down the line, I think. Um, but but you know, they sort of presented that their armor was kind of this self-effacing. Oh, we don't know what we're doing. We're we're fools. We're clowns. You know that kind of thing. But obviously, there was something deeper and more profound there that was evident in the music, but I think also clear in, in the way people responded to them. And, and so, so my sort of the journey of the book really was to kind of understand what that, that power was and where it came from. And in a lot of cases, it sprung from sort of dark stuff and pain and tragedy in terms of some of their early lives and just the kind of, and a context of being from the Midwest from a certain period of time, uh, you know, but Bob and Paul were both born, you know, at the tail end of the fifties and, you know, Tommy was born in the, in the middle of the sixties. And, and so there's a kind of scope there too, in terms of what their influences were, what their raising was, you know, and, and, and all that stuff. And I just, I tried to sort of get into that. So that's kind of really the, the book became for me as much as telling the basics of the, their history as a band, it also became kind of understanding what it was that made them so special to so many people and, and affected people so deeply, despite not having, you know, big hits or big record sales or big exposure, you know, uh, past a certain point. Well, they're authentic. And that's what yeah. read to me. You know, it's funny because I, 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 I was born in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. I grew up my teen years in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And Albuquerque, New Mexico in the early 80s was metal. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows I've seen Iron Maiden a million times, Dio, Rush, Van Halen, ACDC. But by the time I'm starting to get closer to college age, that's when the replacements came into me. And I went to school in Chicago in 1986. They, they were big uh, stars in Chicago. In they were huge you know? stars in Chicago. <laughs> oh, my God. They were, they were, they were fucking massive. Um, and all their shows at the Riviera, or the Aragon Ballroom, uh, even the early shows at the Cabaret Metro. I mean, they were beloved in Chicago. They were my gateway to Soul Asylum and Husker Du and all that other great Midwest music. But, um, you know, I, I'm envious of you because I feel like you're inside the palace walls. You know what I mean? Your you're very hard work with this band, you know, in conjunction with these releases and your own book. I think uh, I, I just want to know if you're just having fun on this ride. It's always, uh, it's rewarding. You know, anything with those guys is always, uh, even at, at 30 years after the fact, you know, their career is, is difficult, you know, and in, in the sense it's difficult and it's easy. It's difficult because Paul and Tommy, who, you know, for all intents and purposes at this point, kind of are the band. I mean, Chris, we keep them apprised of stuff, but Chris is more kind of into his art world and stuff, um, and his art career. Uh, but you know, they have a, have historically until I think the reunion, in 2013 had a really complicated relationship with their past. I think Mm -hmm. 
in the immediate aftermath of the band breaking up in 91 or whatever, I think both Paul and Tommy felt like, well, there was a feeling like this band had failed, which I don't think is actually true, but they hadn't succeeded on the level that certainly everybody wanted and they probably wanted for themselves. And, you know, it kind of ground to a halt in a sense. Um, And I think in the immediate aftermath of that, as I say, I think both Paul and Tommy were looking to move on to other bands, to their solo projects, to something that maybe would equal or surpass the replacements. And I think the funny thing that happened in that sort of 20-year gap after the band broke up is it became clear that the replacements reputation grew, the records became continued to be discovered. They just became a bigger band almost in the aftermath. And I think it became clear what their influence was on other bands. So it it turned out that no, well, maybe the replacements is the biggest and the best thing we're ever going to do. And I think it took a while for them to sort of be comfortable with that as your legacy. Cause nobody wants to, you know, I mean, Tommy, the band was 20, uh, Tommy was 24 when the band broke up, you know, as a 24 year old, you're not thinking, well, that was, that was my career or Paul was, you know, 29 or 30 when it happened. And I think even though they've had both solo careers and done interesting things, I mean, Jesus Christ, Tommy was in Guns N' Roses. He was Axl Rose's, you know, lieutenant for 17 years, which is a bizarre and amazing development in itself. Um, I just think the replacements became bigger in that period. And I think even after Bob's death, it was still something difficult to revisit and sort of contemplate as far as a legacy or whatever. And it really wasn't until about the time of the 2008 reissues that, that Peter Jesperson did and was the first kind of, you know, exhumation of their catalog or, or going back through the albums. And that's about when I started working on the book that, that I just caught him at the right time where it was like, okay, enough time had passed from Bob's passing, enough time had passed from the band breaking up. They're older, you know, Paul has a kid, Tommy has, you know, a couple of kids. They're, they're just in a different point and place in life where they could sort of finally, I think, because of all the baggage and the pain and the sort of disappointment, finally look back and see what it was that they had built this great thing that now had sort of become this huge legacy. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where they were okay to do that. But at the same time, now, even it's hard for them still to go back. I mean, they're not the kind of guys to go and sit necessarily and labor over remixes or alternate tracks. So, I mean, you know, I talked to, talk to them and their management and I've been lucky in that because we had a success with Maxwell's, which was the first in the series. And then we were able to do something more ambitious with Dead Man Pop and the response critical and commercial has been so good to this stuff. And for the last couple, they've said, okay, we trust you. You know, it's a really with those guys, they're not the most trusting people in the world, but after whatever, 13, 14 years of essentially working with them. And I think the success of the book too, um, you know, I think they're, they're, they're willing and able to be like, okay, you know, we're not going to tend to and cater this legacy as far as reissues or anything else, but you know, We'll, we'll, we'll sort of hand it off to you and to me and to Jason Jones at Rhino, who's been a great partner in all this. And in this case, Peter was involved with the Sorry Mari issue. So, I mean, I consider myself lucky. And so it's, it's, it's easy in one sense because they've sort of been like, okay, you do it. But also, you know, it's nothing's ever easy with those guys either. You know, they're just, you know, Leopard can't change its spots or whatever. So, you know, it's always, it's always hard work. But, you know, I feel like what we've done. Has, has been pretty rewarding and the response obviously has been very gratifying. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I have had a lot of fun, but it's just, I'm just happy that these things exist and that frankly, 10 years ago, even, or 12 years ago, it'd be hard to imagine like a four disc, one LP, big box set re- retrospective of something like Sorry Mon. So I think between their reunion and the book and the success we had with the earlier reissues, we've kind of created an environment and just the kind of audience sort of growing. We created a situation where, and, and, and with Rhino's help, where it's like, okay, we can do this stuff, you know, treat them the way the Beatles are treated, the Stones are treated, the way the great bands and artists, because I think they're on that level, you know, and certainly for a lot of people. And so it's just nice to have the opportunity to kind of uh, do these things the right way and, and, and sort of expand on what it was they did creatively. I think sometimes they get a little, uh, not short shrift, but overlooked because their myth and their, the romance of the band is so like big and sort of outsized. Sometimes the work actually gets forgotten. And I think that's the most interesting thing about Sorry Maws, you hear even at that early stage, how hard they were working and how much creativity was happening as this band was evolving at a very early stage. So it's just, it's really the, the, the product is, is the most rewarding thing for me. Well, uh, let's go in depth on the, the latest log on the fire. The <laughs> awesome Rhino re-release bundle 40th anniversary celebration of Sorry Ma. I want to read um, something for the listeners, something you wrote in okay. this very extensive 
this book that's just, uh, by the way, it has the best pictures of the replacements too. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing I should mention. There's a couple we found I had spent as I started on the book, which was about 2008. I, I knew they had, there was no photos of them at the Longhorn, which was the first you know place they played in Minneapolis. And it would, it would have been the first photos taken of them in July of 80. So yeah. within weeks of them connecting with Peter and getting on real stages. And there's about, I think four or five photos uh, six, maybe from that session, this woman who is a photographer, a local magazine, and who later went on to Jean Pierre, who went on to work for the St. Paul paper. I knew she had these negatives and I literally chased her for 12 years to get these photos. And finally she retired from the paper. And then out of the blue one day after I hadn't heard from her for years, she sent me a screen grab of actually one of the photos that's in the, in, on page 13 or 14 of the booklet. And I was like, Oh my God, cause it's the earliest stuff of them. And it's so early that they look even different or addressed different. And so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm d- jumping the gun, but it's like part of the fun for me really has been able to the stuff I couldn't even get into the book or didn't, you know, wasn't able to find now that I have an outlet for for this stuff in terms of these reissues. So, well, you're like Indiana Jones going into, you know, a fucking Mayan <laughs> gold mine, you know, because, you know, for mega fans, you know, we've never seen some of this stuff. Let me just read a quick little blurb. Sure. It's just an awesome little, little paragraph. Uh, in the book that Bob wrote, everybody, it's fucking amazing. And yet the magic trick of the replacements first album still delights and dazzles 40 years on. It's an album defined by its competing impulses and intentions, a heady mix of naivete and cunning trepidation and defiance, raw noise and irresistible melody, naked honesty and canny myth-making in short, it encompasses the mass of contradictions that made the replacements so compelling. That is it. It's the yin and the yang. I mean, that's the band in a nutshell, but it's also Paul in a nutshell too. You know, um, I mean, I think everybody to a certain extent, you know, every every person is a contradiction. I think theirs were more stark, you know, certainly as it played out in a career in rock and roll, but it's like you were saying how authentic they were. And at the same time, Paul was, you know, a, had a canny instinct, like I say, for show business. He'd read about P.T. Barnum and read about, you know, the kind of old carny sort of stuff. And so he knew that side of it and would play that up in a very authentic way, you know, and we think of like performance and authenticity as being sometimes, you know, kind of paradoxical or fighting against each other. And that's kind of what made them special. They found a way to make all this stuff work without it coming off as, you know, an act. And, uh, and, and so again, yeah, that's kind of, and, and in a way that this album certainly sort of sets the foundation for all that. I, you know, people always say you can always tell someone, uh, tell something about someone by their favorite Beatle. And I, I feel that, that same way about the replacements and Tommy for yeah. some reason has <laughs> always been my favorite. I think maybe because I was almost exactly as old as he was. Um, right. and I sort of watched him grow up in a way. And then even later on, you know, with perfect or, you know, him playing solo at Largo in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I've just watched him do his thing. So, um, it's uh, it's just so awesome to get into this. Um, so let's just do a little dive into some of the tracks that you picked when I had Peter on to talk about the Sorry Ma set. He picked a bunch of his favorite cuts from this incredible Rhino release. And when I asked Bob to come on, he sent me a list of songs. So we're going to go one by one, and we're going to start with the cut, Looking For Ya. Half a mile from a liquor store to drive to it, I could use some more. When it's hot, I can see. Looking for a honey, where I can be. Looking for a honey. Bob, tell me about Looking For You. Well, it's kind of an interesting song in that it's um, it almost predates the replacements or the impediments as they were first known. It's kind of a it's a Westerbrook song that he wrote and actually had played with a couple of bands or ad hoc combos he'd had just before the replacements. I mean, the thing about the replacements is it's true that for Chris, Tommy, and Bob, it was kind of their first band. I mean, Dog Breath, which was the three of them and various other people that preceded it, but they hadn't really done anything. Paul, on the other hand, had been kind of kicking around bands, mainly as a lead guitarist, almost exclusively, in fact, as a lead or rhythm guitarist for a number of years you know, cover bands, kegger party bands, you know, a couple of things that were a little bit, nothing that really sort of recorded or lasted very long. But as he was making that transition out of being the lead guitarist and, and wanting to be a front man and singer, which I think was at least inspired by hearing the Sex Pistols, you know, for him, I mean, he was playing... He was a, a and and he'll he sort of downplayed I think his musicianship, but I've heard tapes of him in a kind of pre-replacements combo where he is just an incredible guitar player, lead guitar player, rhythm guitar player, doing you know boogie blues stuff, Doors covers, you know whatever it is, uh, ACDC songs. I mean he just he really could play, 
anything and everything. And I think all that kind of got sort of blown apart, his his desire to be a sort of lead guitarist in the Dwayne Allman mold or whatever, um, uh, after hearing the Sex Pistols. And so I think that shifted his thinking. is like, if these guys can do it, if this guy can sing, uh, you know, maybe I can sing. And I think he just, you know, we always think of Paul as being a sort of unambitious or self-sabotaging person. But in that early period, I think he was really ambitious. And it was that, that ambitious that helped him find the replacements and sort of shape what they were early on. And so Looking For You is part of a batch of three songs we have on this box set that are actually the very first demo the replacements made, which has never been released before this. Um, it was recorded by a guy named Jeff Jodell, who sadly passed, uh, who was a buddy of uh, of Paul's and had played in some bands with him. Uh, and they recorded it at the, at the, at the uh, first Stinson house, uh, not the famous Let It Be house. And so Paul came in after they had sort of hooked up and were playing some covers. He Initially, Paul came in again to be a rhythm guitar player. And as the famous story goes, you know, the, the band wanted a singer and Paul brought in a buddy of his um, <laughs> uh, to uh, kind of sing and, and 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 be the singer. And the band liked him. Bob really liked him. And uh, Paul sort of did his little thing and said, well, you know, I like you, but the band doesn't like you. And then he told the band, well, I, I, you know, I like you, but the singer doesn't like you. And so he sort of edged the guy out very cleverly. And that left Paul as kind of the singer to be. Um, and at around that time, he came with a, a group of songs that he had, um, Try Me, which I know Peter uh, was one of his picks, and She's Firm. And then this song, Looking For You. Uh, Looking For You is really interesting because it kind of hints at Paul's blues roots. You know, there was a big kind of Minneapolis blues scene in the West Bank, uh, Kerner Glover and Ray and uh, Lamont Cranston, Willie Murphy. There was a kind of West Bank by the university blues scene. And Paul, I think his older brother, kind of was in the, the blues and bluegrass and folk was a kind of thing. And I think Paul, one of the things he was a kind of early building block for him was blues stuff and through his brother and his brother's fence. And again, a, a little bit of the residue of what was happening locally, you know, in Minneapolis pre new wave, there wasn't a whole lot of original music and the original music was the old kind of, again, the residue of Dylan in a way, West bank folk and blues scene. Um, and so I think this song has its roots in that. I mean, it's sort of blues structured, but again, like a lot of Paul's songs, it's, it's about his world and, uh, <laughs> and trying to get liquor, trying to score or whatever. Um, and this song obviously famously later on Hootenanny became Love Lines, which was kind of Paul reading the, an issue of the city pages and riffing along to it. And then they did a version of it for a comp uh, around that time or a little later than this. But this is the original first version that he did. And it was the first original song I think he wrote complete start to finish that everyone noticed was like, whoa, you know, um, this this is something you you might actually be a songwriter. A couple of us, as I say, he played it with a couple of his buddies. Um in different bands. And so for me, it's kind of, you know, it's ground zero of Paul's songwriting in a sense. Um, I think Try Me was a song that they submitted, uh, as Peter might've told you, for a competition. And that's much more of a pop thing. But I think uh, Looking For You is a song that kind of recurs in Replacements history a little bit later. But this is the first and original version. And again, from the very first time the band ever recorded and, and within, you know, a couple of months of them first getting together. So it's a really kind of special sort of moment in their history and, and Paul's personal history as a songwriter. When I had um, Peter on, he said to me, you know, after hearing so many of these early songs, he, he there was a point where he was like, I don't know if I have enough to help this guy to the next level because his talent is so yeah. immense. You know well, what I mean? And the, and the crazy thing is he came into the band. So December of, of 79, like I say, he had two, he had looking for you, I think for sure. And maybe try me and bits and pieces of a couple other things within a meeting, you know, a month of meeting those guys, uh, the Stinson brothers and Chris Mars, I think that fed him. He was very reactive to whatever his environment was as a songwriter, whatever his input was. Um, and, and certainly the meeting the replacements and sort of feeling that initial chemistry was a real stimulus, I think to his songwriting. So he went from, you know, being a, halfway, not even a singer and a halfway songwriter to being a songwriter and a singer, and then having two songs to eight songs to 20 songs to by that first year. Uh, I mean, there's 40 or so different original compositions. I mean, that's a lot of songs. I mean, you know, some of them obviously didn't get properly recorded. Some of them, you know, are interesting, but maybe not great, but most of them are pretty good for a guy, you know, who six months before or eight months before hadn't written much. So I think, you know, there was a period after Paul, um, it's it's kind of his wilderness period after he quit high school right before he was going to graduate in 77 until he discovers the replacements in 79. He was playing around with people. He was going to the library, checking out records, self-educating and books and reading. And I think that's the the sort of period where it's kind of the crucible that he plucks, you know, who he is and what he is. And it was like he was sort of studying for this moment 
where he was and looking for this band. And when he found the Stinsons, I think that was just this explosion of this creativity that had been kind of uh, fermenting for a while or sort of bubbling for a while. And, um, and so, you know, you have this explosion of incredible material that this whole box set documents, but really I think looking for you, which sort of predates him meeting the replacements. It's almost of an older mold and an older style. All three of those songs, you know, even though it was the first demos they recorded, those were songs that Paul had written really before he sort of knew the band and knew their strengths and was affected by them. Um, so it's almost the kind of pre-replacements, even though it's recorded by the replacements or the impediments technically when they did these. Um, but it's a song looking for you in particular is a song that kind of survived. And, and I think it does have uh, some connection because, you know, early on Paul and Bob, they were coming from pretty different places musically. And I think where, you know, Paul was more into singer songwriters. He knew folk and blues. Bob was into, you know, uh, you know, heavy rock and yes, and some prog and different things. And, and Paul knew all that stuff. And I think Bob knew a lot of stuff that Paul knew, but their, their real tastes and passions were different and their styles were different, but where they kind of landed was in this kind of boogie blues thing, because, Paul was, a, you know, Bob was a big Johnny Winter fan, you know, coming from that white blues, blues rock background. Paul knew all kinds of blues stuff. And in fact, the first show I think that both of them went to was a 70, 1975 concert in St. Paul. It was Johnny Winter and James Cotton. And Paul went to go see James Cotton and, and, and Bob went to go see Johnny Winter. So, you know, they were kind of coming from different worlds, but there was a sort of overlap. And I think something like Looking For You uh, is a kind of merger is it's where they meet, you know, musically. And it kind of starts this kind of discussion as, 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 as musicians, as guitarists that sort of evolves, you know, over the course of those, those months and into the first album. As a replacement nerd, uh, I could listen to this all listen, day long. I, 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 I've <laughs> spent 12, 13 years on this stuff. I could have got probably two other PhDs, but I'm stuck with an unofficial degree in replacement studies. So I'm glad somebody is appreciating all this useless information. Well, well I am. Uh, so let's move on to the next cut that Bob picked from the Sorry Ma uh, bundle. This is the demo for Raised in the City. All right, tell me about this one. Well, so this is kind of the, the the eureka moment in the band's history. So after they had done their first demo with Try Me and She's Firm and Looking For You, um, they had sent Try Me to um, Twin Tone, sort of unknowingly. It sent it to Twin Tone because Twin Tone and a local radio station were doing a compilation album, you know, taking entries, and it's called the Songwriter Album. And uh, there was a kind of panel of, of judges who were judging these entries. So it wasn't a typical Twin Tone project. And somehow it never got to Peter Jesperson, Try Me, uh, the, the the song that they had submitted and and maybe they, it's not even clear they might have submitted a cut, one or two of these other songs so that was their first demo in that interim you know from them sending and getting a nice formal rejection letter from twin tone and this this uh, radio station saying yeah we don't want this they were playing more and rehearsing more and by that point Paul had written a new batch of songs, which included, uh, which were the first four songs on the demo that eventually he passed to Peter Jesperson, who was, you know, the manager of Orfolk Records and the head of Twin Tone and was a DJ at the Longhorn and would help get bands booked there. And so they submitted it to Peter, uh, this new demo uh, to get a gig at the Longhorn. Of course, Peter hears it, flips. I'm sure he told you that story and says, do you want a record deal, basically, which, you know, was, was kind of light years beyond anything they could have expected at that point. But what I think Peter heard and what is the really the magic of the band and what's very cool about this box set is now with that first demo, you can hear how much they sort of, how it, the sound changes, evolves, and the power of what Paul has now figured out in terms of his songwriting and how it works for this band. And so it's like that first demo, the try me and, and, and she's firm and, and, and looking for you was done, you know, maybe February of, of 80. And then by April of 80, a couple months later, you get the, the demo that got them signed and discovered. And of course, Raised in the City is the first song that Peter heard. And, you know, there's a famous story of him playing the first few seconds and just wheeling around uh, and stopping the tape, rewinding it, starting it, and then sort of, you know, flipping out about it, calling everybody he knew and just confirming that it was as good as he heard. And I think, man, when you listen to that, and, you know, when you know that story, but when you listen to it, you can kind of hear, you know, with a lot of bands, early bands, you know, their first demos or whatever, it's, it's sort of quaint, but it maybe you're like, well, somebody had a vision to see this. And Peter certainly had a vision because I don't think anybody else would have seen it, but there is something sort of undeniably powerful uh, about Raised in the City and particularly that early version. Um, you know, again, it, it's funny to, and it's very cool. It, 
part of the thing that I really like about the sorry mob box set is like, it's really, you're getting the first 18 months of the replacements or the first 15 months of the replacements. And you can really hear this evolution in a way they had it from the beginning, but it got sort of the molecules got reshaped, you know, in a way you can hear it on try me and, and, and looking for you that first version. But I think what, what happens is Paul just kind of figures out the pieces and rearranges the parts. And I think their chemistry uh, really starts to build in that, in that sort of two month interval. And then you have what's on the, the first four song demo that blew Peter away. And that obviously, you know, uh, uh, kind of really defined and shaped their destiny ultimately and raising the city being that first song. So it's, it's a favorite, you know, I think it's the most, certainly the most important song and moment thing they ever cut because I, uh, you know, as I always say, if Peter hadn't responded to them, because at that point, you know, their live shows had been kind of somewhat unmitigated disasters. They'd been kicked off out of a couple shows for drinking, you know, sober dances, and they really couldn't get a foothold in what was then the kind of new wave music scene because they really were outside of it. You know, young guys who didn't have any connections. And that's why they went to Peter. They were looking for an in just to get gigs. Uh, and what they happened, obviously, they got a record deal and a career out of it. But I think if somehow they hadn't captured that magic on this demo. And if Peter hadn't had the sort of right set of ears to sort of hear it and, and be pulled away by it, or even just play it, you know, if he had a pile of demos, he might've missed it, you know? Um, and, and, and if Paul hadn't been determined, cause I think he sort of bugged Peter a little bit about it. I, my feeling is I can't see them, you know, knowing who they were and what their sort of limitations were. I mean, the joke is none of them had a driver's license, so none of them could even get to a gig really. (laughs) So they had to have somebody to drive them and take care of them. And, you know, they're, they're often lumped into that DIY sort of era of ages, but they're the opposite of DIY. They had somebody driving them from gig number three, you know, Peter, (laughs) Peter. So, but, but my feeling is a long way of saying this is, I'm not sure a band without, you know, that was just sort of knocking their head against the wall, even just to get a gig had already been rejected once from by their first demo. And, you know, Minneapolis, there wasn't a whole lot of other options other than Twin Tone for a band like that. I'm not sure they would have lasted much longer, you know? And so I think it's, it's kind of as much of the replacements history is it's uh, dumb luck and, and timing and having the right people to sort of back you at the right time allowed them to sort of go on for 12 years and eight albums. I think there was a lot of points they could have combusted, but, you know, certainly the critical moment is, is having someone who not only validated, yeah, what you're doing is good, sort of helping them sort of get into the scene became their booster and champion in in terms of Peter, but also just sort of was there at the right moment so that they didn't fray and fall apart. Cause Paul had been in, in shit tons of bands that, you know, didn't had that same thing. They never really came together. They didn't get encouraged, but they couldn't get gigs. And it just, we went on to the next thing. Now I do think, Paul was so talented that, you know, maybe he would have found his voice as a songwriter, maybe would have found another opportunity down the line. But, you know, the stranger things have happened where talented people, if they don't get sort of the right encouragement and the right opportunity at the right moment, they sort of, they just exist in their bedroom for the rest of their life. You know, I don't know that I think Paul personally, I think he would have found a way because I think his songwriting voice, but he's, he's also proven to be somebody that isn't completely mainstream. And so the way he came into it and had gained his success was kind of through this independent world, this alternative world, and then ultimately to the major labels maybe there would have never been the person to sort of encourage him or, or put him in a position to succeed on any level. And, you know, that's a kind of strange and frightening thought, you know, to think how different history could have been if, if this record or this, this tape and this demo and this song in particular had been sort of received by the right person at the right time. Well, I think Peter's uh, love and enthusiasm also helped them sort of uh, skip a bunch of the steps that the other old school Minneapolis bands thought they had to go through to get to the promised land. Right. I mean, I know that's a part of their story that a lot of some of the other bands were like, Hey, get back and get back in line. You guys aren't ready for a a recording contract uh, to put out an album. Uh, You know, almost, I I don't know if there was a, how dare you? I'm, I know they were loved by, there was a little bit of that, you know, I mean, there were, there was a, like in any local scene, there's a kind of pecking order and, you know, people are expected to sort of pay their dues and, you know, Paul, talks about that at the time he said you know there was some you know grousing because peter sort of jumped them ahead of the line because he was so passionate about them and sort of put them you know kind of in a position to succeed on the label and in the scene um but you know paul says it in the song you know i can't wait forever i can't wait that long you know (laughs) uh so and he was they were not the most patient of people paul in particular so i think you know, I think there's a quote in the book where from an interview from right around that time, even before the first album, he says, you know, yeah, who says you have to pay your dues? You know, <laughs> it's sort of like that. So I think there there was a sense of that, but there was also a sense of, I think in Paul's case, of like, yeah, if we don't do this now, this thing might fall apart. Because I think that as powerful 
as the chemistry was, it was also just as combustible as, you know, history would sort of prove. And so I think if, if, you know, they, I think Paul always had a sense of, of, of a clock kind of ticking, you know, in a sense, both in terms of his interest in sort of keeping going with something that it wasn't necessarily going to succeed or didn't have promise, but also just, you know, the nature of a band that doesn't really get the opportunities. And so I think he was like, fuck it, you know, we got this opportunity. Who doesn't care, you know, what, well, who, who, you know, who pays their dues or who thinks it's okay. And you know, obviously very quickly, they proved that they were worthy of Peter's interest and Twin Tone's interest and, and sort of, you know, justification of being, you know, uh, who they were and what they were and then the career they had. Bob, tell me why you picked the alternate mix of Love You Till Friday. But one of the really cool things about this uh, set is hearing, you know, the, the funny thing to me is like you think about a band on a small independent label in the Midwest in the early 80s. And Twin Tone, you know, of course, now has a great reputation and legacy, but they were a pretty shoestring operation at that point. And most bands, you know, call them, we won't say the replacements are punk, certainly had punk intent and leanings, but, you know, rock and roll band or most indie little baby bands on a local label in the Midwest at that time, they're spending a day, two days recording maybe, you know, uh, a week at most. But the replacements, I think because of Peter and because I think everybody felt like this is an important band that could be an important band. There's something special here. They spent a lot of time and a lot of different recording setups trying to get this right. You know, initially they did a demo session, which was really kind of an audition for Peter's partner, Paul Stark, which is also represented on here. And that's, I think, some amazing stuff. I mean, they were really at that point kind of playing for their lives and their careers. You can almost hear that uh, in the in the twin tone demo. But then once they basically agreed to the deal and they started working. I think there was some um, reticence in the studio because they'd never really been in a real working studio situation. And so then Peter and, and, and Paul Stark tried to record them live in a club, you know, in an empty club of the day, just kind of get them on stage uh, to make them feel more at home. And those recordings didn't work out at all. They didn't really finish most of those. There's one song called We'll Get Drunk, unreleased composition that's representative from that stuff. And then eventually it came back to Blackberry Way and I think they sort of settled into it. But you know, like I say, most bands wouldn't have had those opportunities or that time. And then they worked very long and hard getting the right versions, the right arrangements, if you will. I mean, arrangements is sort of a grandiose term, but, you know, I think so much of what Paul does is based on a kind of spontaneous energy and, and, and in the moment kind of recording. That's the way he really likes to record that as you hear on this, on this, on this set, there's a, you know, he can slow the pace down or Bob can do something. There's a kind of, interplay that between them and with Paul sort of leading a lot of it that can totally change the personality of the songs, you know? And, um, fortunately Peter was smart enough as they were recording these and, and, and doing alternate mixes or alternate takes or alternate vocals, he was kind of collecting all the various versions, uh, and sort of copying them because, you know, master tape, they weren't going to keep all that stuff. They were sort of like, as Peter puts it, they were kind of like the dailies from a film, you know, uh, or, or work prints or whatever. But, um, fortunately he saved all that. So we have all these really cool different versions and as you can hear even a simple song like uh uh, uh love you till friday or something like that what we're doing right yeah <laughs> i forget if, i forget if it was love you till friday or, or i'm in trouble but both of those there's multiple versions on there and you can hear just they they sound very different or just slightly tweaked in a really interesting way and the song takes flight in a completely different way and this is one of those songs that um and versions that i particularly love it's it's i think slowed down from the there's there's a couple versions of it slowed down from the there's a faster version there's the you know and they picked one for the album and in a funny way the album the 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 released album is a little more punky in terms of its energy in terms of the song choices i think that's the other cool thing about this set is there's songs on here and versions on here that play up more their blues roots or their kind of pop sensibility or rockability or early rock and roll kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the album kind of got shaped a little uh, a certain way because of the particular takes or particular sequence or, or choices. But I think the cool thing about having this sort of expanded version is you can hear all the different types and approaches they took to songs. And so as representing, you know, uh, that kind of strain of, of, of material in, in this box set, I really love this version of it, but you know, there's multiple versions of, you know, Johnny's going to die that have really cool stuff of shut up of, uh, something, something to do that again, it's just, you know, for a band that you think, 
that for a record you think was tossed off in an afternoon. No, there was actually a lot of work and a lot of intent and a lot of creative tinkering going on. And, uh, you know, within a sort of confined palette, I mean, obviously they're not putting strings and horns on things or, or doing weird arrangements, but there is a, there is a, it's almost a kind of a live spontaneity to the alternate versions that's, that really comes through. And again, it's interesting to hear where the band takes songs or where Paul takes vocals or where Bob takes certain guitar things. And so that's kind of, you know, if you know this record and know it well, as I'm sure most fans do, it's really exciting and, and sort of um, instructive to hear how much creativity and how much creative freedom they had and, and, and intent and ambition, you know, while they were making this album. And that, that, that version of Love You Till Friday is, is, is kind of... Uh, and, you know, again, as I sort of <laughs> parenthetically mentioned, the version of I'm in Trouble or Johnny's Gonna Die, you hear those studio alternates and, and you get a whole different sort of picture and version of the record. Well, it's interesting to me because, you know, they never play the same song twice. Right, right. You, you know, they all they always mix it up, even if live Paul is just going to change the lyrics because he's in a mood. You know, it's a really interesting thing about the replacements um, that they weren't that sort of like when you go to see the fucking Scorpions live, you can see the Scorpions right. live in Albuquerque or Denver or uh, fucking Boston. And it's going to be the same song played the exact same way, note for note. And the replacements, it's just not in their DNA. No, to do that. And, and later on, it became, you know, here it's kind of interesting because. Peter, you know, captured and, and kept all those alternate versions. So we have this kind of thing, but you know, that was a, uh, both, uh, part of what made them interesting, but also part of made it difficult in a kind of industry sense. Like I remember Jim Dickinson talking about, you know, Paul would never, you know, at that point, by the time they were recording, please to meet me, which Dickinson produced, you know, it was a much more of a big studio kind of traditional record making thing. Although Dickinson was clever enough and smart enough to know them and sort of worked around that. But like, he would say like, you couldn't get Paul to play the same guitar part twice. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? He's just sort of constitutionally fundamentally disinterested or unable, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so, but also that means he's incredibly creative. He's coming up with something new every time. And, you know, Bob was the same way. I think, I think, you know, on this record, Bob would find the madcap, crazy, amazing thing to do. And it would just refine it further with Paul. It's like, he, he just gets bored very easily, even with his own material or approach to songs or solos. And so he has to kind of do it a different way. And, you know, you mentioned the thing about the show. It, it was that same way with the shows too. I mean, that was the funny thing when they went on tour with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, which which struck them and kind of disturbed them, I think, is that, you know, Petty, as great as he was, he was doing the same thing night after night, the same stuff in between songs, the same, you know, kind of banter, the same moves. And it's like, to them, that was, uh, it was just unthinkable, you yeah. know, not just for Paul, but I think for the band to kind of repeat yourself in that way, because that was you know, just total anathema to who and what they were and how they had always approached things. And I think it, a lot of that came from Paul's just sort of inability and, and the lack of desire to repeat himself in any way creatively. Well, that, you know, I saw that tour um, not long after a triumphant uh, Don't Tell Us All era show at the Aragon Ballroom in mm. Chicago. Uh, 1989 and then in the summer they come back and they play poplar creek which was just a big outdoor shed in suburban chicago opening up for petty and that was there was triumph at the aragon ballroom my friends and i of course we were going to see the replacements we're not going to see (laughs) petty i love tom petty but we were there for the replacements with about a third of the audience you know what i mean it was like a third full and when they came out i just remember kind of the looks on their face that it was like, oh, fuck. And yeah. <laughs> a, a chunk of that third weren't mega replacements fans. They were just Loop uh, loop FM fans from Chicago right. who didn't give them any love at all. <laughs> right. So it was so it was just so jarring to me. I'll never forget that because, again, just a few months before, they had uh, an, one of my favorite shows ever at the Aragon Ballroom. And, you know, it was electric, it was packed, people were fucking excited, they were amazing that night, uh, and then Yeah, Creek. I mean, that's a whole other thing, but, you know, it's funny, I, I was just uh, thinking about this the other day, because I was doing something, and, and it came up uh, about that tour, and it's like, they faced... Uh, uh, you know, non getting they they tried to end after a while. They tried to play well, you know, early on, and you know they were either weren't playing to a lot of people, or if by the end of the set they were playing to a lot of people, it was kind of a tepid response, and that was worse than being booed, you know. Yeah. And then there were times where they went and sort of, you know, were trying to sort of antagonize people and just got no response. Or there wasn't a lot of people there. Or when there were people there, if there was, you know, Paul has a funny quote about it. He says, you know. 
we went from being very successful and being revered in our own world to going to this other world, opening for the Heartbreakers. And, you know, it's one thing if you get rejected in a club, there's a few hundred people uh, or a couple hundred people. It's another thing to get rejected by 20,000 people, you know, every night. It's like, it's different between a small club and a small city, you know? And I think for them, that was because their career from the moment they met Peter um, and sort of finally got a break, their career was always in the ascendancy. Uh, almost always, you know, in 86, they went to Europe and they weren't, you know, as known, they hadn't really penetrated Europe or gone over there. So it was a little bit, you know, they were around the Tim time, they were just blown up in America. They went to Europe. It was a little bit of a down, but that was a bump in the road. But by the time they got to Petty, it really had mostly been just up, 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 up for them career wise, crowd size, the love and response they got. And as much as they sort of pretended like they didn't care what people thought when they got to that level with Petty and they weren't getting that response, it really was, they didn't handle that well. I mean, they yeah. never sort of handled that rejection because they hadn't experienced it too much. And I think that whole tour obviously opened their eyes a lot about what you have to do and be and how you have to be to succeed on that level professionally. And I don't think they had the stomach for it, had the desire for it, or really wanted it. And very soon after, Paul really tried to break up the band. Of course, they ended up making all shook down, but obviously that's many years hence. But it's it's interesting that those, those tendencies, a kind of an aversion to repetition an aversion to sort of uh, kind of creatively repeating yourself, uh, an aversion to sort of doing the same thing over and over is really something that dictates their career from the start. And it's interesting to hear on this box that you hear it in a positive way with all these you know different versions of the songs and, and how it goes. And of course, later, once they got into the more of the industry game and the music business game, that tendency tend to kind of hurt them ultimately. But, you know, like I say, everything was always there with them from the beginning and it just kind of got... Uh, you know, exposed over time, you know, in one way or well, the other. As a fan during that era, during the Don't Tell a Soul era, as a fan, I felt like they were, there was so much pressure on them to reach REM success. Sure. Yeah. Like there was for a lot of other, you know, in, in the days before Nirvana, the indie bands. Yeah, that was before the Nirvana. that was the barometer. That was the bar yeah. that had been set by that point. Yeah, right. So. And with it, with it, with the monster deals that. Um, you know, the jump to Warner Brothers for, for REM. I mean, it was just so, it was just such a part of the thing. And I just felt like, well, they just didn't want that or play the game that you had, you said it. Yeah. They didn't want to do the things that you had to do to get to that thing. The talent was there, but the game uh, obviously was something that was insufferable for them. Yeah. And it, but it's interesting too, because, and, and going back to this record is, you know, people always talk about that sort of the conflict that, Paul had in terms of going for it or whatever. And I think that was much more about, like you say, playing the game. I think creatively they, they always went for it. You know what I mean? As, and, and maybe never as much, uh, you know, as they did on this first record. Yes. They were more ambitious with the later records. Don't tell a soul. And what we did, you know, in, in the version of dead man's pop that we put out, I think that really shows how hard they were working at a very high level in terms of major label recording and working with a great producer, Matt Wallace and at big studios, they were really trying something creatively and, you know, I think the middle records, they were on the road so much, uh, you know, with Let It Be and, and Tim, there aren't that many outtakes. There weren't as many songs because once you get on the road, you're not at home, you're not rehearsing as much. And I think the period where they were really um, both the most ambitious because, you know, they hadn't achieved anything yet and the most creatively sort of hunkered down was in this period as you would be because it was new and they were discovering every day was a kind of discovery of who and what they could be and the potential. Um, and Paul, as I say, you know, went from two songs to 40 songs. I mean, that's, you know, there's a lot of, like I say, with this, with this set, it really is kind of being thrown in the midst of that, 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 that storm of creativity that was the replacements for those first 15 months. And again, the, 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 the alternates on, on this, particularly the, the alternates of familiar songs that ended up on the record really just give you a window into that, that process in that period. All right. I strolled out of work. I was tired as hell. Another day is gone. Oh, well. You picked uh, If Only You Were Lonely, the alternate version of that, which is has a little bit of a different tempo, has a, even kind of a country-ish feel. Right. One of the things we, we wanted to hope we got okay on and we did with Paul, a couple of his home demos had been on previous releases, um, but there, we knew there was some more from this specific period. You know, some of them came from later, but this was all, you know, sort of fall of 80, early 81. And of course, If Only You Were Lonely, very crucial song in their catalog, the B-side of their first single. It was a 
Paul solo track, essentially, you know, uh, as the B side, it was a total, you know, acoustic country ish kind of, you know, written almost as a tongue in cheek country song, but it really has a kind of pathos in it uh, as well. And one of the things we found, there's a couple songs, and I know Peter picked one of them um, uh, on there. Uh, you're pretty when you're rude, and it shows that's this real, real finger picky kind of Leo Kotke song. Who was somebody Paul knew, and again harkens back to Paul's bluegrass and folk roots, and also his guitar expertise, which was you know he really kind of downplayed and let Bob really kind of shine in that way in the band. Um, and so as we were listening to the original sort of tapes that. Paul had brought over for Peter that he had had all these years. You kind of hear you're pretty when you're rude, which to me, if you listen to it, I mean, it sounds like a Jeff Tweedy, uncle Tupelo track. I mean, he sounds like Jeff, he's inventing Jeff Tweedy on that track in a way. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's shocking sometimes even how similar their voices sort of sound. And, you know, Tweedy later and has told me, you know, I learned to write songs from Paul Westerberg and he saw them in 83. Anyway, as he's doing that, that song, you're pretty when you're rude, which is a real country folk finger picky type thing. Um, you hear it sort of almost evolve into if only you were lonely. And then there's multiple takes of him sort of really writing the song, which is what this version that we call the kind of uh, if only you were lonely working version solo home demo um, is he's, he's writing the song. And I just found it so uh, intriguing, even though it was in kind of bits and pieces, we've sort of edited it together, like what it was like as he was, as he was working the song out. Uh, and you hear it sort of the, you hear him kind of take the, you're pretty when you're rude sort of riff and sort of finger picky stuff. And then it kind of evolves. And then you hear him find the, if only you lonely hook. And then the next the little bit of it is him writing the song. And there's a funny version where he's, he stops. Uh, there's a line. He says, you know, woman, shut your mouth. Where's my dog. And it's like, you know, he's taking it too far and he stops and is laughing at himself. And it's like such a rare peak for a guy who's, you know, mostly been pretty private about his process and doesn't like to sort of talk about it. It's so cool to hear him at such a young age, just writing, creating, finding these sort of di within these forms of like folk and country picking stuff, finding his voice, you know, as Paul Westenberg, the sort of smart ass songwriter who could sort of make you laugh and make you cry at the same time, which is, you know, probably the rarest gift that a songwriter has. I think there's only a handful of people who really ever been able to do that. You know, I mean, Dylan could do that. John Prine certainly can do it. And this is Prine-esque in a way, you know, I think. And so it's just an amazing, you know, it's less of a song than it is a snapshot of a, a, a guy's creative process. Paul Westenberg at 19 years old in his bedroom, sort of writing this iconic song and still figuring it out. But it's just su such a compelling sort of moment, you know, and of audio verite or whatever you could document of, of, of that process. Let me ask you about one more song and I'll let mm -hmm. you go because we're, we're, we're running out of time here. Uh, one of my favorite songs on this entire uh, collection is the song We'll Get Drunk. <laughs> right. I love this one. Tell me about We'll Get Drunk. Yeah, as I mentioned, it's uh, when they were trying to make this record um, after the initial demo, just kind of a, they did a stereo two track quick demo session audition really for, for Peter's partner, Paul Stark. And then, but there was a feeling that, well, these guys maybe aren't comfortable in the studio. So they started going around to, they recorded at 7th Street Entry and 1st Avenue in the, in the big room there, the famous clubs in Minneapolis with no audience, just trying to get it. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was a sonic thing, none of that stuff came out and they really didn't finish vocals. But the one song they did finish vocals for was the song, We'll Get Drunk, which uh, there was also a kind of real slow version country. You know, from the early on, they were playing with a lot of forms. You know, there's a version of a fast Johnny's Gonna Die on here. You know, ultimately the, the release version, sort of contrary to the rest of the record, was a slowed down, sort of more moody kind of, uh, you know, paced uh, track and then you know there's a there's a there's a kind of country-ish we'll get drunk but we put the 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 uh, sort of full you know recorded version on here and it's interesting because obviously given what their reputation became and really was even from the beginning you know one of the things that's so wonderful about this record and paul's songwriting is the sense of you know creating a mythology about the band uh, you know, he's talking about the band in songs. He's taking inspiration from Bob and Tommy's experiences um, as a kid, as kids, you know, Bob's juvenile delinquencies, Tommy's, you know, kind of, uh, you know, youthful uh, indiscretions and, and sort of put, making that fodder for his song. I mean, in a way, in the same way, I think that Ian Hunter made 
you know, the band and rock and roll as a subject that he sort of explored in mind or the way that Robbie Robertson sort of took uh, the experiences of the other guys in the band, whether it was Lee Von Helm or whatever, and built songs around that. I think a great songwriter, and Paul certainly was a great songwriter, even at that young age, you know, he's a, he's a sponge for everything around him. And I think, um, you know, uh, we'll get drunk. It, he, he's playing with their reputation already. He, you know, and if you look at the great thing about like the liner notes that Paul wrote to, to this album, you know, he's like, this could have been rockabilly if we'd have bothered, or this was written 20 minutes after we recorded it. He's already creating this mythology about the band as sort of lovable losers. We don't care. You know, we're clowns, we're fools, you know, all that stuff. And again, that became sort of a shield for them later on and certainly part of, uh, of their identity. And I think in a way why people identified with them, they weren't saying how great we are. They're saying, look how ridiculous we are, you know, and people in an era where there was certainly a lot of pomp and, and a lot of, of self-aggrandizement in, you know, the big eighties era, it was a very, you know, that was a message that connected with a lot of people. Um, but Paul was at the same time, Paul knew he was a good songwriter and he knew they were a great band. They would never cop to that or admit it sort of publicly, but the proof was sort of in the pudding, you know? Uh, and, and, and I think Paul was again, in that sort of period between high school and forming the replacements, quitting high school and forming the replacements. I think he became, in addition to being a big reader and a big student in his own way, you know, not formally trained, I think he sort of started to understand what it was about show business and what, what rock critics liked and what, you know, what worked and how to sort of play with humor and how to play with a, a band's imagery. And so this whole album is loaded with, you know, basically stories that were either about the, the band or themselves. And he references a lot of self-referencing going on. He's just creating this thing. And that's why I think you know, I think this record sometimes gets, you know, overlooked because their later records are so great and maybe they found their sound in a different way. But I think this is probably the purest distillation of what the band did and what Paul did as a songwriter. And it's kind of the, the as I put it in, uh, maybe in the, in the liner notes I've said elsewhere, it's kind of their origin story. And part of their origin story is creating the quote unquote idea of the replacements. And Paul does that in the songs. So by the end of this record, and certainly as you hear this box, it's like, you have a real good idea of who these guys are and, you know, the packaging, the photos and the liner notes that he wrote, you have a real good idea of who they are. And he's created this, you know, instant kind of myth that would grow for the next 10, 12 years. And, and now 40 years on. You should teach a college course. There should, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's at Madison or if it's, at, if it's at, if it's at, uh, Minnesota uh, or UCLA or USC, but there really should be Replacements 101 with Professor Bob Mayer. DeVry um, Tech, probably. But, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, Santa Monica City College. Come on. Why not? Um, dude, this has been an absolute blast for me, filling in so many of the blanks. As a fan, I just cannot thank you enough. And I also can't thank you enough for your hard work. Uh, congratulations on the Grammy, oh, and and I hope that uh, you you get nominated for round two uh, with the with your hard work on the the Rhino Records bundle. Well, the fact that there is an actual Grammy award that exists with the name the replacements on it, I'll, I'll take that and I'll be happy with that. I don't expect anything further. So, well, I had uh, I just had Jimmy Pardo, my one of my favorite comedians, Jimmy Pardo, on the podcast, and he did the liner notes. With David Chicago, Wild right. for Chicago at Carnegie Hall, so I got two horses in the race uh, <laughs> for for the next Grammy liner note deal. Uh, but you know, again, thank you so very much. Uh, yeah, thank I'm gonna, you, and I appreciate it because you know, like we we're down to the we're into the fourth version of you know doing a deep dive in this replacements catalog. And like I say, you know, it's the first one we've done in the Twin Tone catalog, and uh, you know, as successful as the other ones have been you know, critically, commercially, I'm, I'm so really so proud of this and feel so fortunate that, you know, there's this much documentation of a, a band that we all love in such an early and important sort of formative period. And, you know, I hope people are, uh, who might be on the fence, just go out and check it out, you know, check it out on streaming service, but really buy it because the whole package, you know, we really do these things kind of lovingly and pull out all the stops in terms of, you know, how we present it with the booklets and the photos and all that kind of stuff. So I, I hope the people who, who listen, who are replacements fans, you know, get an opportunity to, uh, to check it out and pick it up. Well, you're working really hard to bring new fans to the, to the to the party, uh, and that's a big deal for someone like me too. Um, you don't have to say yes or no, but I do hope that Trouble Boys will be on the big screen at some point in the not too distant future. Uh, I know how impossible it is uh, to get those things done here in the city of Los Angeles. Um, 
I have dabbled in that myself, and it's uh, it, it is endless heartbreak. But well, uh, uh, that's all yeah, I'll say I mean, about we've that. We've had some unlikely things happen between the book and these things, and so hopefully, you know, down the line, who knows? It's from from your lips to God's ears. Exactly. Well, you know, uh, there are so many fucking obstacles in the sausage factory. <laughs> So, uh, but again, uh, you know, so much great work and thank you. And thank you so much for doing the Brando cast today. Appreciate it, man. My pleasure. Thank you again. All right. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing. So many great guests coming down the pike, but come on. How fun was that? Hanging out with Bob Mayer, the author of Trouble Boys. And, uh, you know, go pick that up. That's that's out there, people. You got to get that book, uh, as I do. And, of course, the Brando cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. I'm going to play us out with another cut that Bob picked. This is the live version of Trouble Boys that comes with the set. It's from their show at the 7th Street Entry on January 23rd, 1981. So until the next time, cats and kittens. Trouble Boys came in. Everybody-